0: Probably the majority of you have the New King James Version of the Bible. There are many other good, popular translations. Anybody have a different translation tonight? You want to just shout it out? What do you got, Roger? I, know. I know, okay. Who else? Nobody? Nobody has the non-inspired version, the NIV? I have the Mormon Bible. He the Mormon Bible? <laughs> Pearl of Great Price. Doctrines and Covenants. We'll talk to you later. Yeah. Pardon? Okay. I knew I'd get in trouble for doing that. None of you, I'm pretty sure, has the Jefferson Bible. Founding Father Thomas Jefferson denied all things supernatural, so he edited his own New Testament. It's completed in 1820 by cutting and pasting with a razor and glue numerous sections from the New Testament. Jefferson's condensed composition is especially notable for its exclusion of miracles by Jesus and most mentions of the supernatural, including sections of the four Gospels that contain the resurrection and other miracles. The story of Jonah and the great fish would not have made the cut in Jefferson's Old Testament. Jesus, however, alluded to it as historical, and we believe the Lord. Before we get to the great fish, let's set the scene. The Jews enjoyed wonderful spiritual privileges that the Gentile nations did not. In Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul lists some of those spiritual privileges. He says, "...to Israel pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God." And so, Paul points out that what we all know, that Israel was God's chosen nation. Uh, They were given the law as a covenant. They served God in the tabernacle. And and ultimately, it was through the the nation of Israel that the Savior was born, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, a tremendously privileged people. They were commissioned to share that knowledge of God with Gentiles. We often forget this, um, but... um, You know, the church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. But in the same way that we are entrusted with the gospel today, to share the gospel and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Jews were God's representatives on earth in that day to share the knowledge of the one true God. The Jews refused over and over again, but God, who is full of pity, sent the message of salvation to the Gentiles, despite the Jews and the Gentiles' Uh, despite the Jews, rather, and the Gentiles entered into the spiritual privileges of a relationship with God. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see many saved Gentiles. Jonah was sent to Gentile Nineveh. We talked about that last week, capital of the Assyrian nation. Jonah illustrates the Jews in their refusal to share with the Gentiles. God, who was full of pity, got his message of salvation to Nineveh despite Jonah's refusal. And the people of that city entered into the spiritual privileges of a relationship with God. We'll see that they got saved. We should take all of this to heart because the church can repeat Israel's disobedience when we refuse to show God's pity to those who are perishing. For a long time, as an example, Christians have struggled to minister to homosexuals, today broadly included in what they're calling the LBGTQ. When AIDS was first being recognized, early rhetoric from pulpits made it sound like God didn't want homosexuals to be saved. I, I won't repeat some of the comments in some of their churches today that are still on that kind of a mood. God is not willing that how many perish? Any. God is not willing that any perish. Same-sex attraction is real for many individuals, including Christians. Acting upon it is sin. It is sexual sin. It's condemned by God's word. But so is fornication and adultery and other sexual sins committed by people who are considered straight. And and they're just not held in the same regard, are they? Heterosexual or homosexual, God has pity and the solution is always the gospel. And so it's not condoning sin to reach out to a, a portion of the population that needs desperately the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know when you talk to people whatever their their sin is forget that they're sinners the the heart of the problem is the problem of their heart it's not the per, it's not the expression of their sin it's the fact that they're sinners they need to get saved and then they repent of their sin do you remember when you got saved i hope you can some of you have probably been saved since you were children and so it falls a little bit on deaf ears but those of us who got saved later on in life it wasn't because we gave up one particular sin that dominated our life. It's that we realized that we were sinners in need of God's grace and love on our way to a Christless eternity. And then when we were born again, we had power over sin in our lives. I know with me, and it's nothing, I can say this honestly and powerfully because it's nothing I did, but when I got saved, I just didn't do the sins that I used to do before. Uh, I, I didn't drink. I didn't cuss. I didn't smoke marijuana. Uh, I started to be a better employee. In fact, I almost got the rest of my sales staff in trouble. We had expense accounts as salesmen. And, of course, if you're a salesman in the world with an expense account, you, you lie about it. You buy stuff for yourself with your expense account, and say, you, "Remember years ago, at restaurants like Denny's, fast food, or not fast food, but places like that, you'd go to the counter, and they had those old-fashioned checks where you'd tear off the bottom, and it was a little receipt, and um, uh, there would always be a, a like a plate where a bunch of those extra receipts just hung out." Well. You probably didn't know this, but salesmen would grab one or two of those as evidence that they had taken somebody out to breakfast or taken somebody out to lunch and they'd put it on their expense account and they'd get reimbursed for something that they never really paid for. Guys were buying shirts and suits and, you know, just, but everybody did it and so it was one of those things they winked at. Well, I got saved and I didn't feel comfortable doing that anymore. And so my expense account dramatically went down to the point where they called me in the office and said, what's the problem with your expense account? And I, as a young Christian, I said, well, I'm a Christian now. My boss was a Christian at the time, by the way. This is interesting. I said, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I got saved and I'm not lying anymore. My expense account, like I have been and like everybody does. And he goes, he, he said, well, it's making everybody else look bad. And I said, well, I can't help it. He goes, well, you're going to have to actually take more people out to lunch then, and, and you need to spend more money, otherwise we're going to be in trouble here. And I go, all right, I'll figure it out. And I never did. I just, you know, but it was, it's interesting. that It wasn't, it just, you changed. It was the power of God unto salvation. And so we always get into these debates with people, you know, about their sin. I just, you're looking at a sinner who doesn't have the power to overcome that. They need Jesus Christ, and God has compassion on them, and we have that message. Uh, and we can tell them, once they're saved, to go and sin no more. Uh, and so, we, you know, we can easily become like Jonah, not not in general. I mean, we all want the gospel to be promoted, but perhaps there's a person or a group of people or, or a segment of society or a nation somewhere that we would just as soon be wiped off the face of the earth. Maybe it's North Korea. Maybe it's Kim Jong-un or whichever, eel or Ung, whoever's there right now. But, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and we need to step back and have God's perspective on this and not be a Jonah. And just kind of, you know, we can go the other way without ever going anywhere. Just by being closed off to sharing the gospel. So let's look at the fish in verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. you remember from last week, or most of you obviously are aware of the story, Jonah had uh, been told to go to Nineveh. He decided to go to Spain instead, as far away from Nineveh as he could get. God said, "By his, you know, that's not going to work, and in his providence he brought this great storm. Uh, he ultimately... Uh, ended up being thrown overboard he said hey if you throw me overboard the storm will cease and everything will be fine and uh, Jonah so hated the Ninevites that he was willing to commit suicide and die rather than preach the gospel to them the sailors didn't want to throw him in these Gentile sailors they had more compassion for him than he did for them they eventually did throw him in the sea calmed. Jonah probably figured that was it I mean when you get thrown out of a boat in the middle of the ocean without a life vest or any emergency beacon, uh you're you're going down at some point. And uh <laughs> God had a different plan for him, and it was this great fish. Now, this may be disappointing to you, I hope it isn't, but I'm not gonna take any time to convince you that this really happened. There are great fish large enough to swallow a man whole. The Bible never says it was a whale But if it was a whale, there are sperm whales large enough to swallow a man whole. Most of you have heard of a particular historical account. James Bartlett, who in 1891 was on a whale ship, the Star of the East, swallowed by a whale and lived. I want to tell you that there is now some dispute over whether or not that's a true account. It may be true. It may not be true. We're not 100% sure. The scientists over at Answers in Genesis, that's a good website, everybody aware of that, Answers in Genesis, AIG, good Christians who are scientists and have all these answers about creation and science and how the Bible, you know, predicts these things. Uh, They've got a good web article that cites a few of the fish it could have been And they cite theories on how Jonah could have survived the digestive acids in the belly of an animal like that and how he would have had the oxygen to breathe. It doesn't matter if it can be repeated or not because there's a word in verse 17 that settles the matter. It is the word prepared. The Lord supernaturally prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. It, it, It was Probably not native to the region, you know. Every once in a while, they see something, they say, oh, that's a living fossil. I love, don't you love living fossils? It's so insane, they're talking about a creature that they say has been extinct five million years. But here's one. How do you have just one? He's not five million years old. That's one of the problems, I'm not sure if the Loch Ness Monster is real, and I know some of you think it is, but it's one of the problems with the Loch Ness Monster. Monsters can't just live all by themselves for hundreds of years. There has to be a family of monsters. They have to have little monsters. And, and do you understand? You can't just be the same monster for a thousand years. I mean, nothing lives that long, and so... Um, you know, they've got these living fossils. But um, everybody's got an argument about why this couldn't happen. But it certainly did happen. God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And um, I, I just, you know, here we like to put ourselves in the story. What was that like? I mean, I've been watching Shark Week. I mentioned that on Sunday. And and uh, then something was on the Internet just the other day. There was a surfing competition where they caught on, on camera a shark attack. And the guy was fine. The, the shark left him alone. But it was terrifying to watch as he was, ah, ah, everybody's yelling and he's paddling in and all this kind of stuff. And, and and so, but you're bobbing in the water and you're trying to think, should I just drown or should I swallow sea water? You know, what is it I want to do? Because you're Jonah. And then all of a sudden... Where does this great fish come from? Does it come from beneath like a shark attack or does it just, I think it just kind of plops up and just starts motoring towards him very slowly and opens its mouth and just sucks him in. Just, you know, I think because God has a sense of humor. Because Jonah thinks it's over now. That's, it's done. I'm done. I, I beat God. I was, he told me to go to Nineveh. I went the other way, and I, was, I called his bluff. He didn't think I would kill myself. He didn't think I'd go that far, but I told them to throw me overboard, and they did, and so there. And the next thing you know, here comes this great fish and swallows him whole. God prepared that fish. Jesus spoke of Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Giving credibility to the story, letting us know the story is true. It's not a myth. It's not, an, it's not just an illustration. It's not hyperbole. It actually happened. People say, well, why does God do strange things like that? To draw attention to the wonderfully strange things he does, like having his son, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, so that you can have a kind of a pictionary view of how these things happen. Now, the rest of the chapter, chapter 2, is regarded as Jonah's prayer. Interestingly, very little of him in it is praying. You're told that he prayed and you're given snatches of his prayer, but most of the words are his description of what he experienced in the pit of the great fish. In each case, what he experienced was a reminder of spiritual privileges that belonged to him as a believer. And these are your privileges, too. And first of all, just obviously prayer, verses 1 and 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And so, is, is it a prayer? It's, it really sounds like an analysis of his prayer. But at any rate, he's telling you he prayed. You don't get to his prayer itself until verse 4. What you're told here is that Jonah remembered he had the privilege of praying. He knew that he could cry out to the Lord and that the Lord would hear his prayer. This is amazing. This is tremendous, really. After all the disobedience that Jonah had been involved with, I mean, to the point of, of taking his own life practically by having himself thrown into the ocean, he still knows that he can approach his Lord. This is the first mention of Jonah praying. He didn't pray at all in chapter one. The storm raged and the non-believers cried out to their gods while he slept and didn't pray even when asked to pray by the captain. A Gentile asked him to pray for them and he didn't do it. And so Jonah, he was, you talk about being backslidden. The storm was severe, but not severe enough to remind Jonah to pray. So God had to prepare a pit is what he calls the fish's belly from which Jonah would remember the privilege of prayer. Then there's God's promises in verse 3 and 4. It says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. When Jonah said that, he was claiming a promise in God's word. At the dedication of the temple at Jerusalem, King Solomon said, Whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands towards this house, the temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. And so the Jews had an understanding that they could pray towards the temple and that God would hear them. And, and uh, so Jonah, he says, Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. How did he? He must have an amazing sense of direction inside the belly of a fish underwater. Which way is east? You know, but he, he knew that God would hear him, and he claimed the promise. God, you, you, Solomon, through Solomon, you promised that if we prayed towards your temple, you would hear because it's representative of the temple in heaven. And that's where the prayers are going. And so he remembered God's promises. In the pit, in the deep heart of the sea, when the flood surrounded him and the billows and waves passed over him, he remembered his privilege of claiming God's promises. Next there's preservation in verses 5 and following. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah described his pit as Sheol, the abode of the dead. The pit was indeed a simulation of Sheol or of Hades, we would say. It was obviously utterly dark in the belly of the whale, no lights. It wasn't like in Pinocchio where they you know, built a little fire in the corner and roasted little fishes that were coming in. I mean, he's just probably a pretty tight fit. I, I don't see this as a condo situation you know, I don't know what the fish was, whether it was a sperm whale or not, but I, I don't think he had very much room. And inside the belly is dark. Uh, temperature would have exceeded 100 degrees. Just, you know, it's hot inside your body, your core temperature as we're talking about it. And so it would be hot. Sea- he says seaweed was wrapped all around him, choking him. And there would be little in the way of breathable air, And acids in the belly of the fish would be affecting his skin. Now God is slowing all this down, giving him breathable air. I mean, there's a miracle taking place. This is supernatural. But still, there would be all of these things. When we get to it, we'll talk about uh, what Jonah must have looked like when he got out on the beach. I mean, crazy. Like seaweed. Seaweed. Acid treatment He looked like he just came back From a spa treatment I guess maybe <laughs> But anyway pretty weird Still Jonah declared You have brought up my life From the pit He meant that God preserves his people It's actually true That you and I are indestructible Until God is done with our lives the, You know I don't know when I'm going to die I don't want to know when I'm going to die That would be weird I think uh, It would be it would affect me negatively, I believe. Uh, and so that's up to God. But, you know, many of you have been through a situation where you think, how did I survive that? One minute I thought I was going to die, and the next minute I was okay. Yeah, and so the Lord, He's going to accomplish His will in, in our lives. And even though He was in a simulated Hades, God had sent Him to Nineveh and would see to it He got there. He remembered His preservation. And it's interesting, it's a whole, maybe a devotional thought for you to think of later, but um, the Ninevites, apart from the good news about God's love for them, were headed to a Christless eternity in hell. They would start in Hades and then be cast into the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. And so Jonah is getting a kind of a private hell. He says, hey, is this what you intend for the citizens of Nineveh? Is this really what you want for them, for them to be confined having very little breathable air in the heat and darkness. And what about their children? Is that what you want for little Assyrian children? And and so it's a very interesting thing that God is doing. And finally, he remembered the privilege of God's presence in verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Jonah had sought to flee from God's presence. Now he spoke to God with the full awareness that wherever he was, God was present with him. God saw him from his holy temple, this time a reference to the true temple in heaven. And so we remember that God's omnipresence is a privilege that we have. The Jews were especially privileged people. We read about some of their national privileges in Romans 9. We recounted some of their personal privileges just now. Jonah took his privileges for granted, so God prepared a pit for him within which he would remember them. When you take privileges for granted, a pit might be something God uses to bring you back to your spiritual senses. Uh, I don't want to say it's the only thing he uses because God has a lot of unique strategies in all of our lives. Sometimes I think we make a mistake by saying, this is what happened to Jonah, and so this is what will happen to you. Th- there's some similarities, but it could be that if we do take our privileges for granted, we might find ourselves in some kind of a pit. Whatever he does, it's worse than leaving you alone in your rebellion. Whatever it looks like here, it's better for Jonah to be in the belly of the great fish than to make the journey to Spain and be in complete disobedience and rebellion to God. Right? I mean, we all know that. And, and so whatever, whatever God has to do to get Jonah's attention and to get him on the right track, to get him to follow him again, uh, it's good. Joan is almost ready to be barfed on the beach, but first he gets his priorities in order. He says in verse 8, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. The idols of these civilizations were representative of real supernatural power. The Apostle Paul confirms the association between idols and demons in his first letter to Corinth when he says, this is from chapter 10, he says, He says, what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God I do not want you to be participants with demons so we tend to think of the idols of these temples like in Corinth as just stone or rock or uh, you know, wood or whatever they're made out of and, and that's true they are fashioned by men's hands and they're made of those materials but Paul says there are demons behind the worship of these idols there's real powers, powers and principalities and the rulers of the darkness of this world. Uh, and so we need to remember that. Sometimes we, we don't take idolatry serious enough. We always say, well, anything can be an idol. You know, My car can be an idol or my girlfriend or my wife or my this or my that. Well, that's true uh, to an extent, but uh, sometimes there are real powers behind these things that are seeking to destroy your life as well. And so this is the state that Nineveh was in, and Jonah proclaims that no idol can provide the mercy that's needed in order to have sin forgiven and be saved. Idolaters especially need the gospel since they are trusting in a false hope. Nobody needs the gospel more than an idolater who thinks that his God or her God is going to do something for them, and they're powerless in the end. They're trusting in a false hope. Jonah was now ready to, he says, pay what he had vowed. This could be a reference to his calling as a prophet. He was now ready to fulfill it no matter the assignment. There's a lot of things I I would like to do for God, and then there's some things that are not so fun. And, you know, you try and pass those off to your assistant. (laughs) or somebody else but you know you're just on board for whatever it is God asks you to do pay what you vowed no matter the assignment then he said salvation is of the Lord if God wanted to save Assyrians in Nineveh that's his prerogative to do it salvation was never exclusive to the Jews privileges and such were exclusive but the idea was for them to share with the Gentile nations and salvation's of the Lord he can save who he wants to save Having returned to his spiritual priorities, you read in verse 10, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The Hebrew word for vomited means vomited. What, what a humiliation. I wonder if there was a day at the beach, you know, it was maybe beach days in Nineveh. and these, That would have been freaky. You know, you know when you see something, even, even before Jaws, when you see something pop up out of the ocean, you're like freaked out. What is that? So all of a sudden you're at the beach in Nineveh and, and this giant fish, huge, the sperm whale type fish, you know, comes. And to barf him on the beach, he had to be pretty close to the beach. I remember when I was a kid realizing how, I mean, you get these big sharks that are in like six inches of water. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, you think that they're way out beyond the waves that they don't like the waves and they're they're like right there. Hey, what's happening down there, you know? The ocean's a weird place. And so this fish comes right up. And I, I, I think God has a sense of theater and drama. I think the fish went into convulsions first. <laughs> 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 What's it doing? Are there any marine biologists out here? Do, do, you know, are we going to help this thing? Or... <laughs> <laughs> and out comes Jonah covered in seaweed and slime. Can you imagine the stuff? Can you imagine the stink? It's incredible. It's, it's an amazing thing. In the pit, Jonah's priorities came back into focus. I should point out that his heart was still hard. After he preached to Nineveh and after they repented, he was angry and he still wanted to die. You can serve the Lord with the wrong motives. That's a shame, But for now, at least, Jonah had returned to his priorities, and that's a start. Jonah is fascinating. In fact, when you really look at the Old Testament, guys, they're all fascinating in in the sense that we would probably say on a test, if there was a test that said, you know, do you need to be really walking with the Lord in order to serve him, we would say, oh, yeah, absolutely. Clean hands, clean heart, all that. And then the next question is, what about Jonah? Jonah... Still didn't want to preach to the Ninevites. He he didn't want them to get saved. His attitude was terrible. But God still used him. You know sometimes we just have to go through things. People have all these questions. You know how do I deal with this. Or why do I feel this way. Or when is this going to end. You know you need to go through things with God. You need to endure them. So that he can teach you things about yourself. And if. If. If God only used Christians when they had totally clean hearts and minds and hands and feet, nothing would get done. I'm not saying that we, you know, uh, should laugh at sin or or that sin should abound, that grace might much more abound, but we have to have a a right perspective on this. All of us are, are still sinners struggling with various different things, and God still, in his grace, wants to use us. If I'm asked to list my priorities, it always goes like this. God, wife, family, church, work. That's a great list. The trouble is they all compete for the top spot and they get out of whack. But it's probably best to say God is my priority and that I need him to be first in all of those other areas. So God's not somebody you put on a list even at the top of the list. God obliterates lists he 's just God, Jesus Christ, and then you start thinking, okay, in the Lord, walking with the Lord, I have these priorities to live like a Christian in my marriage and at work and uh, you know all of this various stuff, and I have to be sure that in my marriage, God is first, and in my home, God is first, and in my church, God is first. And that, you know, God is your priority wherever you are. And when He is your priority, then you can joke. Because even though marriage is your priority, my top priority is my marriage, and then you're in the United States Navy and they send you away for six months. What just happened? Well, marriage is still your top priority, but God is ordering it, and He's telling you how to keep it that way. So you see what I mean? You can't, can't always be working on your marriage. In, in that sense and, and so if God is your top priority Your marriage will survive you, you, Your work will uh, be blessed You know those kinds of things So think about it that way So next time somebody asks you What your top priorities are Say you only have one And that is to serve God And so the question tonight is Is he our top priority? To what extent can I say For me to live is Christ And to die is gain Not a rebuke just something we each should reflect upon. Now, what a great verse. For me to live is Christ. If God gives me another day of living tomorrow, I should serve him in all the areas of my life that I've listed and more. But if I die, then I gain. And so that, that's, the, that's a word of priority right there that we need to bring to our hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And then Nick's going to come up and lead us in some songs.